a somewhat dark passage and a little bit difficult passage. So we are going to jump right in. We're going to go through the passage sort of as we go through the sermon. So let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, as always, we thank you for giving us your word, for making us your people. Lord, this morning as we come to your word, we pray that you would give us a greater understanding of this dark and difficult passage. Help us to see your grace in this. Help us to see our own need of your grace in this. Help us to get rid of our smug and our self-sufficient attitudes. Soften our hearts. Make us repentant. Bring us to yourself, for we are sinners who want to walk in the way of Cain. Have mercy on us this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. In today's National Football League, the players grabbing the most headlines are quarterbacks, running backs, and wide receivers. But according to Michael Lewis's book, The Blind Side, which was made into a great movie, by the way, I commend it to you, uh, the ones who grab the second highest paychecks after the quarterbacks are the left tackles. In the book, Lewis explains the importance of these uh, somewhat anonymous but essential offensive linemen. He traces their emerging importance back to the career-ending injury of Redskins quarterback Joe Theismann on Monday Night Football in 1985. The Redskins have been looking for a quarterback ever since. (laughs) That's not in here, actually, but... But more than 17 million people watched as an incredibly athletic linebacker named Lawrence Taylor blindsided Theismann, uh, horribly breaking his leg. And since most quarterbacks are right-handed, the left tackle's main role is to prevent the quarterback from being hit from behind, unseen, hence the blindside. And with the next generation of athletic linebackers and defensive ends, it takes a special person to do this. Left tackles generally weigh more than 300 pounds and have long arms uh, to block, but they also have to be quick on their feet. And today, teams are willing to pay for such a player. By 2004, when the book was written, uh, the average salary of a left tackle in the NFL was $5.5 million a year. Good work if you can get it. Only starting quarterbacks earn more. And the role of the left tackle is essentially to be his brother's keeper. That's the role that God plays on our behalf and should be the role of every member in God's church. And team sports are excellent at Uh, teaching the importance of every other team member. In football especially, there is a responsibility to protect one another. And some positions exist for the express purpose of protecting other players. But it is somewhat of a universal responsibility in that sport. And the church has the same kind of responsibility to its members. We're taught to love one another, to watch out for each other's interests, to help one another. And sometimes it can seem that we're in this thing called life all on our own. And we need to make sure that every brother and every sister in Christ knows that they're on a team called the church and that someone is making an effort to keep them. 
And yes, if you are a hotshot quarterback playing in the NFL, you definitely want a brother's keeper at left tackle. Your health and well-being depends on it. Your physical safety depends on it. Your ability to perform depends on it. Without that brother's keeper doing his job, it would only take a few hits to put you out of the game permanently. And it's no wonder that such big bucks go into the bank accounts of such big guys. Wouldn't it be great if every Christian played at that position for the other Christians in this family that we call church? When God went looking for Abel and he asked Cain if he knew where he was, Cain's guilty reply was to question his own responsibility. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, actually, Cain, yes. You are your brother's keeper, or you should have been. Instead, Cain's anger and displeasure at the rejection of his offering and the acceptance of his brothers moved him to become a murderer. He wasn't a brother's keeper, but a brother's killer. And then he had the audacity to challenge God on the matter, openly asking if his brother was his responsibility. It's been said by many that today we live in a world of the temporary, a world of throw away everything from products to relationships. It's easier to discard things than to take care of them or repair them. And few of us, truth be told, actually want to be responsible for someone else. It's understandable we have enough trouble being responsible for ourselves. But this goes against the grain of everything the Bible teaches about relationships, particularly within the family and particularly within the church family. We're to encourage one another. We're to serve one another. We're to look out for the interests of others, not just ourselves. We're to comfort one another. We learned that in Sunday school this morning. To love one another, even restore one another when sin attacks. If you were an NFL quarterback, I would be really excited to have you in this church because you make a ton of money. <laughs> no, it's, I would just love to have you because you're a great guy and all of that. Uh, but if you were an NFL quarterback, you would demand that your team get a top-notch brother's keeper at left tackle. And as a Christian, you ought to hope that you have access to some folks who have your interests at heart, who will help to keep you. But for that to work, you have to be a brother's keeper too. And on our own, none of us will do well. But together, we have a chance. We're at the beginning of Genesis 4 today, the well-known story of Cain and Abel. It's a story of hope and grace hidden within a larger story of sin and resentment. And we start the story with a brief moment of optimism. You might call it a heartbeat of hope. It's your first uh, blank in your outline. A heartbeat of hope. Starting at verse 1. See, the centerpiece of Genesis 4 is homicide. But this is far more than a record of the first murder. It's about, as Jude 11 says... Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. 
meaning that slide of a heart away from God in a notorious sin. And the story reveals something of the essential nature of all mankind. It's a story of depravity, and it's a story of grace. The account begins with this burst of optimism. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now Eve's pregnancy certainly must have been a source of joyous wonder to the couple. They're probably trying to figure out what's going on because there would never been a pregnancy before. There was no one to get advice from. There was no one who'd been through it before. And I think like millions of daughters to follow, Eve likely placed Adam's hand on her tummy so he could feel the movement of new life. Perhaps he even listened in awe to the heartbeat within. Eve's was the first pain ever in childbearing. But those terrible pains gave way to a joy so deep that it overcomes uh, her pain. And the Hebrew for man here, ish, is not used anywhere else in Scripture to describe a baby boy. The baby's gender was that of Adam. This was another ish. And Eve was saying, in effect, God made man, and now with the help of the Lord, I have made a second man. And she rightly saw Cain as a work of God. Her words are an implicit declaration of faith. Adam had believed the promise of Genesis 3.15. And he named her Eve, Genesis 3.20. The man called his wife's name Eve, which means life, because she was the mother of all living. And the new mother praised God with this newly encouraged faith. And then Eve conceived again, beginning of verse 2. And again, she bore his brother Abel. My spell checker on my computer keeps wanting to correct the name Abel to A-B-L-E. I'm sure I missed it a few places. But the name is important because the name Abel signifies a lack of permanence and meaning and unwittingly uh, alludes to his life being cut short. The same word is used in Ecclesiastes as translated vanity where he says, all is vanity. It's the same word as Abel. Nevertheless, Abel's birth doubles her joy. Eve had become the mother of two sons. Three men have now filled the earthly horizons of the mother of all the living, and hope is high in the first family. Now, something happens that all mothers of sons are familiar with. Her boys didn't always get along. Hard to believe, I know. How many moms do we have here this morning that have at least two sons? Okay, fair number. Now, of those moms who raised your hands, how many who have had, uh, have had sons who have never argued or fought? I'm not seeing any hands. That's not uncommon. As most parents know, this competitiveness is pretty natural for males. And again, as most parents know, it can often be revealing of what's going on on the inside, either good or bad. In Matthew 12, Jesus said, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, the good person out of his treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. 
The point is that our words and actions can reveal our heart attitude. Our heart attitude, that's the next blank, verses 2 through 7. Heart attitude, and heart attitude is exactly what we see here in Genesis 4. We pick up with the second half of verse 2. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. We know nothing of the boy's uh, growing up years other than Cain followed in his father's footsteps as firstborn, becoming a farmer, uh, while his little brother became a shepherd. So both had honorable professions. We don't know if the brothers were in the habit of making offerings or if this is the initial offering. Very likely this was not the first occasion because the opening words of verse 3 say, in the course of time, nearly always denotes a precise period of time, likely referring to the end of the agricultural year when offerings would normally be presented. In any event, their offerings cause a crisis. Verse 4, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Why was Abel's offering accepted while Cain's was not? And why did Cain become so angry? It's often supposed that the answer is simply that animal offerings are more acceptable to God than grain offerings, that blood sacrifices are superior to grain offerings. I'm not convinced that's the answer in this case. Because the Old Testament scriptures honor both types of offerings. Moreover, the context says nothing about blood sacrifice. Yet I think the answer does lie in the text, in verses 3 and 4, because where Cain only brought an offering of the fruit of the ground, Abel brought the best of the flock, the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Cain evidently was indifferent about his offering. But Abel was very careful about his. The Hebrew rabbinic commentators note that fat and firstborn mean that Abel gave God the pick of the flock. And the difference is that of a heart attitude. Cain came to God on Cain's terms. But Abel came to God on God's terms. Cain's spirit is arrogant, as the story will reveal. And the writer of Hebrews uh, gives us further insight into the heart attitude of these two brothers, indicates that Abel's offering was one of faith, Hebrews 11.4. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Apparently, Cain's was not an offering of faith. He presumed to define what his sacrifice would be. Essentially, he's the captain of his own heart. And God would have to take him and his offering as it was. Cain's error is what the later prophets, such as Micah, would rail against. 
you know, uh, offerings, giving in the Old Testament, but uh, not with the right heart attitude. Micah 6 says, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. But here Cain is surprisingly unjust, unmerciful, unkind, unhumble. And the giveaway to his sinful attitude is in his countenance, his facial expression. Verse 5, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. Cain could have taken the divine disapproval of his offering as a gracious communication, uh, which I think that it was, and a humbly ask for God's forgiveness, promising not to fall into uh, such sin again, but he doesn't. It seems there's this resentment towards God which just wells up in Cain, which strangely strangely or perhaps predictably is directed at his brother Abel. And Cain's hatred is intense. You can't miss it. God gently responds to the seething man with these probing remedial questions. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Literally, God says, if you do right, there is uplift. That is, if you do well, your countenance will be lifted up. And in this what seems like a last-ditch attempt to deter Cain, God paints for him a pretty frightening, but I think somewhat hopeful, picture. End of verse 7. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God personifies sin as this beast crouching at the door about to pounce on him. And if Cain doesn't master it, he will become its victim. And the sin at the door is Cain's sin. And if not checked, it will grow inside of him and eventually do him in. Which is what James tells us about sin in James 1. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The consequences of Cain's action would be far more, uh, more far-reaching uh, than the actual sin itself. And here Cain is essentially standing at the edge of hell. But sadly, God's graphic words about sin as a crouching beast seem to bounce off his hardening heart. And in monumental willfulness, he begins his descent into hell. It begins one of the darkest and saddest verses in the Bible. Verse 8, we see Cain consumed by homicide and hatred. The stark simplicity of the homicide draws attention to the horror of it. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. There is haste and violence sort of pulsating in this description. Brother is used twice. This is not just homicide, uh, but it is also a fratricide. This is Cain's little brother, who no doubt looked very much like him, since both were direct offspring of the same mother and father of the human race. 
Abel's flesh felt the same. Abel's eyes were mirrors of his own. Abel's breath uh, bore the same aroma. And there were no uh, guns or bombs to depersonalize Cain's murder of his brother. We don't know how this happened. Did he crush his skull and watch him die like a, a, a bug in the dust? Did he cut his throat with Abel's sacrificial knife and bleed him like a sacrifice? Did he choke him with his own hands until there was no more breath? The text doesn't say. We do know that his younger brother was a good man, a righteous man, according to Hebrews 11. Jesus even calls him a prophet in Luke 11. But Cain killed him. Why? Because he hated Abel. Well, yes and no. The German martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer asked rhetorically, why does Cain murder? And his answer is, out of hatred for God. And he says murder is an act of hatred towards God for making or accepting another who offends me or troubles me or is favored with gifts and honors that I don't have or who stands in my way. That's the way it was with King David. If you remember the story, he was the murderer of Uriah the Hittite. It's evidenced by his astonishing confession uh, to God in Psalm 51. And he says, against you, you only have I sinned. David's awareness of God is not because he wasn't aware of his guilt towards Uriah and Bathsheba, but he saw within himself the cause of his crime. It was with God that he was offended because God had limited his freedom by forbidding him the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David's crime is directed at this restriction that came upon him from God. And according to Jesus, we're likewise exposed by our own hatreds because at their root, they are spiritual homicides ultimately directed against God, however private they may seem. Jesus spoke to this in Matthew 5. He said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. But it's clear in our text Sin's crouching at the door captures Cain. He's not able to rule over it. It brings him to homicide and hatred and left him with a hardened heart. Verse 9, a hardened heart. God immediately is there on the spot, just as he had been with Adam and Eve after the fall. And when God challenges Adam, Adam told the truth, if not the whole truth. But Cain tells an outright lie. Verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And this sort of uh, flip reference to his dead brother, I think, reveals a hardened heart. The deceit becomes his refuge. Paul would later write, in Romans 1, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, 
maliciousness. Murder and deceit go hand in hand. Of course, then the voice of God thunders over Cain. Verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Abel's cry would not be silenced. And now Cain learned something that apparently he hadn't previously considered, that Abel's body, though it's covered with dirt, could not be hidden, for his blood cried out to God. Gerhard von Rad says, according to the Old Testament view, blood and life belong to God alone. Wherever a man commits murder, he attacks God's right of possession. To destroy life goes far beyond man's proper sphere. Spilled blood cannot be shoveled underground. It cries aloud to heaven and complains directly to the Lord of life. So we see the curse falls upon Cain, verse 11. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. But Cain wouldn't merely become a wandering Bedouin. The curse goes beyond that. All of his relationships with his family are broken. All of them, he becomes a lifelong pariah. The earth itself becomes his enemy. Cain, who once worked the soil, had watered it with his brother's blood. That blood had cried out against him from the soil, so he's essentially banned from it forever to wander over it as an enemy of the earth. It's a devastating penalty. But even here, at the end of our passage, we find God holding out grace. Holding out grace, verse 13. Cain's response provides the first lament recorded in Scripture. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain just falls apart. But notice, it's not because he felt any compassion towards Abel. It's not because of the emotional trauma that he caused his parents. It's not even because he'd sinned against God. His cry is one of terror and self-pity. He, the killer, is now afraid that he will be killed. And he knew that with the expansion of civilization, which we actually see uh, in this chapter, Someone during his long life is going to seek to avenge the blood of Abel. And he feels pity and uh, self-pity and fear. But we don't see any sense of remorse or repentance. Yet amazingly, God hears him and responds, verse 15, Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. God promised Cain that any vigilante will be severely judged, and he gives, he marks Cain with a distinctive sign. In one sense, the mark didn't lighten his punishment because a, a premature death would have shortened his sentence. Nevertheless, the fear of a violent death is removed. By all estimates, God's mark, whatever it was, and it doesn't tell us what it was, is an amazing grace. 
Cain is cursed by God, yet guarded by God. Cain's life still belonged to God. He bore God's image, however marred that image is. And this is the mercy that God could do and does even for the unrepentant. Finally, we read verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. There's astounding grace right here in the midst of one of the darkest scenes in Genesis. God doesn't abandon the guilty Cain. When Cain arrogantly brought his offering to God, God saw his anger. God didn't turn away from him. That's grace. God, in fact, engages Cain in a fatherly manner with probing questions. God didn't leave him exposed to Satan without a way out. That's grace. God then exhorts Cain to withstand temptation. Again, grace. And after the murder, the Lord listened to Cain's unrepentant, self-pitying plea, and he places a sign on Cain that protects him for the remainder of his life. Again, more grace. Nonetheless, Cain had to leave. He had to leave his family. He had to leave his land. And he had to leave the presence of the Lord. He became the man without a country. In December 1863, a little-known American writer named Edward Everett Hale published a story in Atlantic Magazine entitled The Man Without a Country. It's a very famous story. Many of you have probably read it. If you haven't, I'm sure you could Google it and find it. This story, which made Hale famous, it's about a United States Army officer named Philip Nolan. He'd been involved in the Revolutionary War treachery of Aaron Burr. You can go back and look up what that is. But at his trial, at Nolan's trial, he was asked if he wished to say anything in his defense to show that he had been faithful to the United States. But he cried out, quote, Damn the United States. I wish I may never hear of the United States again. And the judge decided to take his request seriously. So instead of sending him uh, to death for treason, which he could have done, he sentenced him to be imprisoned at sea on government naval vessels with instructions to the officers that no one was to permit him to hear the name or receive any news or information about his country. And so in this fashion, he is sent to sea, and years go by. He's passed from ship to ship, uh, always being transferred just before the one on which he's been traveling has to return to a U.S. port. Government red tape keeps him from being pardoned, and at last he dies at sea. But not before the supposed author of the story, Edward Everett Hale, himself a naval officer, breaks the orders and tells him about America and the remarkable growth and prosperity during the preceding 25 years. And Nolan's last words are that no one ever loved his country as much as he. A man without a country. That's what Cain became as a result of his crime, of first hating and then murdering his brother Abel. But in Cain's case, so far as we can tell, there was no change of heart. There was no growing love for the land and the people he left. Did Cain repent? We don't know for sure, but probably not. The New Testament scriptures uniformly speak of Cain in the negative, with phrases like the way of Cain, Jude 11, or 
Uh, the one who is of the evil one and murdered his brother, 1 John 3. His life is contrasted with the righteous Abel, Matthew 23. But ultimately, we don't know what happened to him. He may have responded to God. We don't know. He certainly was not beyond the grace of God. On this side of the cross, the scriptures tell us that in coming to Christ, we come, Hebrews 12, which we read in our responsive reading this morning, we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood rightly calls out for vengeance, but Jesus' shed blood shouts forgiveness to all who come to him. So there's great hope for us all. Jesus' blood will wash away all the hidden sins of those who come to him, and his blood atones for all of our public sins, even our most notorious sins, whatever they may be. No one is beyond grace because the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If there's one thing that Genesis 4 teaches us, it's that Cain couldn't save himself, and neither can you. He needed, just as all of us need, the grace and mercy of our God, which covers our sins with the blood of Jesus. Cain's heart was filled with hatred, and it became hard which leaves us with just one question. How's your heart? How's your heart? Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed at the grace you showed Cain. He was so undeserving, and yet you protected him. We're not nearly so amazed at the grace you've shown us, mostly because we think we're better than Cain. But your word makes clear that's not the case, that we're fully capable of just as much, if not more, evil than Cain. And yet here you are again, showing grace to the undeserving, showing grace to us. Lord, we thank you that no one is beyond your grace. We thank you that we're not beyond your grace. Mostly we thank you the blood of Jesus covers our sins. For we pray in his name, the name of your son Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.